Acts chapter 2 this morning, verses 37 through 41. So at this point in Acts, what we've seen is the Holy Spirit has come down at Pentecost. And remember, we've summarized kind of the the whole book of Acts, the whole action of it as uh, Jesus goes up, he ascends to the throne, the Holy Spirit comes down, it descends at, he descends at Pentecost, and the church goes out. And so we've seen those things happen already. In chapter one, Jesus ascends after teaching the disciples about the kingdom of heaven, about telling them that he promises them that the Holy Spirit's going to come and empower them for witness in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now in chapter 2, that's beginning to happen. The promise is being fulfilled and the command is being lived out. The Spirit has come. And remember, the Spirit comes with all this crazy stuff, right? It's hurricane-like winds. The winds are just whipping and howling. It's shake-your-windows kind of wind. And then these tongues that are shaped, or this, it looks like, it's light that looks like fire that's shaped like tongues. It comes and rests on top of these, the heads of those who have followed Jesus, and they begin to speak in different languages, languages of all these people that are in Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. It was a feast of the harvest, where you offered the first fruits of your feast to God. And so they're from all over the world, and they all would have spoken Aramaic or Greek, but instead of just speaking in that common language, they're speaking in all these foreign languages. And what we're tipped off to is that this gospel is going to move from Jerusalem and from the Jews to all nations, to the Gentiles. Still, uh, the people are quite confused. They, they look around and they're like, these Galileans, which are like these backwoods Galileans with their deep south accent and they're speaking perfect French and Mandarin, what is going on? Are they, are they wasted? And Peter stands up, you remember last week, and he says, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. They haven't had their frosted flakes yet. They haven't had their coffee. That's not what's happening. What's happening is what Joel prophesied. And then he lays out that prophecy from Joel. He says, the Spirit of God is being poured out. You are in the last days. The last days actually extend from then all the way till now and will extend until Christ returns. This is the Spirit's been poured out. And this Jesus whom you have crucified was the Messiah. And the Jews are like, that doesn't make any sense. Crucified Messiah is oxymoronic. It's like saying frozen steam. And Peter says, no, he was. God planned that he would end up on the cross. He didn't end up on the cross because he failed in his task or failed in his ministry. He went to the cross because it was God's will. It was God's plan to save people, to save you. And he says, Jesus is the one who pours out his spirit He's the one who rose from the dead. He wasn't just a crucified Messiah and then that was it. He's also a resurrected Messiah. Remember he said death couldn't hold him and he gave us that awesome image of death kind of being pregnant and in labor pains, just having to to push Jesus out because it had no claim on him since he was innocent and since he had suffered for all sins. So the wages of sin is death and death had no claim on Christ and therefore has no claim on anyone who trusts in Christ. Death couldn't hold him, Peter says. He says, moreover, he has ascended to the throne, and he sits the throne of David. He is the king that we've been waiting for, the Messiah that all of Israel had looked forward to. Well, he showed up in a way we didn't expect. 
He wasn't a a conquering Rambo-like Messiah. He was a Messiah who was killed for the sins of his people and raised for their justification. Peter ends in verse 36. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Made there isn't like God, he wasn't before and now he is. It's more like he revealed. And so maybe you've heard somebody say, marriage really made a man out of such and such. What they mean is he didn't become a man when he got married, but these qualities, these mature qualities in him were revealed. Likewise, Jesus is being revealed as both Lord and Messiah. Which brings us to our text today. Last week, Peter was answering the question, what does this stuff mean? What's happening with this Holy Spirit being poured out? And he answered, you're in the last days. The Messiah of God has come. Jesus is Lord. And this week, he's going to answer the question, what should we do? What should we do in response to this? The answer will be, repent and be baptized. The text is very straightforward this morning. Our application is very narrow today. The main idea is simple. Those who receive Jesus repent and are baptized. And the exhortation is simple. Receive Jesus, repent, and be baptized. And if you've already been baptized as a Christian, it's important to remember that baptism is uh, one of the starting points of the Christian life, not the end point. And so you're going to continue to repent, continue to honor Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in obedience to his word. And so if you've already been baptized, there's a word for you here. Continue following Jesus. Let's work through the text in two parts. We're going to talk about understanding the message and then responding to the message. Let's pray and begin. Jesus, we need you now more than ever. Meet us in this time. Help us to subjectively experience the objective fullness of the Spirit as we have gathered together to give you praise and honor and glory. Give us ears that we might hear, change our hearts, shape them, mold them, so that we might begin to feel and love and be passionate about the things that you are passionate about, the things that you love, the things that you feel. Help us to hear a better sermon than I prepared and help me to to preach a better sermon than I prepared. What we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. So the first question is, what did they hear? And we've reviewed some of that. It's the message of the gospel. The Messiah of Israel, the one who was supposed to bring them into the promises of God, supposed to throw off the Roman yoke, reestablish geopolitical Israel, and bring in all kinds of flourishing, has come 
but they have killed him. But the news gets good. It's not all bad. He's resurrected from the dead. He lives. He is Lord. They were pierced to the heart. But why are they pierced to the heart at this message? What does that, what does that mean? And the language is, uh, it's like somebody took a knife and stabbed them in the heart and then twisted it. Why do they feel this way? And the answer is, is because they've recognized they are responsible for Jesus' death. Like, well, wait, this is probably a different group of Jewish people than the Jewish people that were in Israel when Jesus was actually being crucified. So what do you mean that, that they're responsible? What I mean is that they're, they recognize that just as much as the nails held Jesus to the cross, their sin did. That their rebellion against God is just as much responsible for the cross as those who condemned Jesus to the cross. What's happening is they are recognizing that Jesus didn't just die for those people's sins, but for my sins. This is a bit different, isn't it? When you think about Jesus dying for the sins of everybody else, and then when you recognize it's for your lust, for your anger, for your greed, for your selfishness that Jesus went to the cross, you deserved an eternity in hell for those things, for rebelling against a holy God. But instead, the Father sent the Son to live a perfect life in your place, to die a substitutionary death in your place, and to rise from the dead so that you could have a place in God's family when you put your faith in Him. They're pierced to the heart because they see Isaiah 53 coming true. They see that he has died for their sins. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, he carried our pains, and we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. You'll be pierced to the heart when you realize that Jesus died for you, for your sins. He loved you and gave himself for you. And when that happens, it changes everything. When you recognize that, that the Bible isn't just a bunch of rules for you to follow religiously and you broke some rules, Realize it's a story about how God, despite your rebellion against him, despite your attempts to kill him 
and to kick him off the throne and to take it for yourself instead of snuffing you out, chose to come and die in your place. Chose to take the penalty that you deserve so that you could be reconciled with him. This pierces the heart. It brings home the message that God loves you in a way that you can't even imagine. When this happens, you too will ask the question, well, what do I do in response to a love like this? And that's what happens here. They, they recognize that Jesus has died for their sins, that he is Lord, and they are crippled by the knowledge of their offense. I mean, they are weighed heavily. They have crucified their king. They're heartbroken because they've broken the heart of God. And they ask, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I've got to clear away some brush here, and before we talk about what repentance and baptism are, we want to talk about what they are not. All right, repentance and baptism are not means by which you earn or gain salvation. They are not the cause of faith, but the result of faith. They are, not, they are the fruit of faith, not the root of faith. And the order here is really, really important. Salvation comes to us by God's work alone. And then we do good works as a result of that. The Spirit of God here, and in every Christian, is what prompts us to want to obey God. Now, Ephesians 2 talks about um, that we are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. And I always ask, you know, what did dead people do? And the answer is, Nothing. Dead people don't do anything. But God then makes us alive with Christ. We're told in Ephesians 2.8, By grace you've been saved, and this is not of yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. It's God's gift. And then once we've accepted this gift, what happens is, is we are um, saved to do good things, to represent Christ in our lives. We honor God in our lives. And the reason I want to share all this is because if we get the order messed up, then we start to think that our salvation is somehow contingent upon what we do rather than what God has done. That it's up to us rather than up to what Jesus has done. He's accomplished salvation. And it's the Spirit of God who makes us together alive with God that causes us to want to repent and be baptized. And so it's not that you go, hey, you know what? I'm dead. But I think that I should start honoring God. And so I'm going to turn from my sin and be baptized. And then I'll receive the Spirit. That's not what happens. God comes, he breathes life into you, makes you alive, and then you go, I have, my spiritual senses are now tingling. I can now see these spiritual realities around me, and I'm going to respond to God with faith, 
which is exemplified in my repentance, my turning from sin, and in baptism. Okay, now the reason I have to share all that is because some people have used this text in various points in the book of Acts to teach a, a false doctrine which is called baptismal regeneration. Fancy way of saying that the thing that actually saves you and makes you right with God isn't your faith, but the actual uh, baptism, the dunking in the water. And we want to say, no, 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 that's, that's not what's happening in Acts. Uh, especially because in Acts, the order is always different. So you might have noticed already, uh, it says repent and be baptized and receive forgiveness, receive the gift of the Spirit. Uh, That's the order in this chapter, and I think in chapters 8 and 19. And then in chapters 9 and 10, the order is different. You have people receiving the Spirit first and then being baptized. And the point here, the reason I share that with you, it's because the Spirit functions in a way that's unique in Acts. Things are a little bit wonky throughout Acts as it relates to uh, the order of salvation. But, but Luke here isn't trying to give us an order salutus. He's just throwing out all these elements of salvation. He's saying this all is, it kind of fits together really intimately to represent the conversion experience. The rest of the New Testament makes it clear to us. It's the Spirit of God that gives life to the children of God, so that they will respond to God with faith. It's a faith that is evidenced in repentance and baptism. I think Titus makes this really clear for us. Chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. How? through the washing of regeneration. It's just the Spirit giving you a new heart. And the renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. And so you can see that it's the Spirit of God who gives us belief in God, and then the works of obedience flow from that. And so repentance and baptism are are part of those good works. They're part of the fruit of faith. Faith is the root. Repentance and baptism, in this case, are the fruit. So I want to just make clear that positionally, when you put your faith in Christ, you are declared righteous, right with God. God. Practically, you're probably still a bit of a mess, right? Practically, you're not there yet. You're in this process of sanctification. You're becoming in practice what God has declared you in Christ, which is holy. This is what Martin Luther called uh, simul justice et peccator. At the same time, saint and sinner, we are just before God in terms of his judgment, But practically, we're not there yet, and we won't get there until we die and are perfected, or Jesus returns. And so the whole of the Christian life is repentance. It's aimed at becoming in practice what God's declared us in Christ. And that flows from the faith that God has given to us. We don't earn our justification. It is a gift. And once we receive that gift, we start living in light of that gift. It is wonderful news that Jesus 
has died for our sins, that we can have forgiveness of sins, that we can be made right with God and be declared righteous. So repentance and baptism, they don't earn your salvation, they don't, they don't create salvation, but they are they, they're fruits of it. Which leads us to the question, what exactly is repentance? Repentance isn't a simply a change of mind, but a change of heart. It's an it's a entire turning of the person. It's an entire reorientation of one's life. Repentance means that uh, you're walking one way towards sin, and you turn around and you start working, walking the other way towards God. Think Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh gives a really good example of what repentance is not. So I'm going I'm to turn to Exodus. We were there a long time ago when we walked through the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus chapter 9. And what I, what I want you to see here is that there is a difference between repentance and remorse or regret. And so uh, in Exodus to this point, there's been uh, a bunch of plagues have come. I think we're on the seventh, and it's hail, and it's really bad. And Pharaoh in verse 27, sends for Moses and Aaron. And this is what he says, chapter 9, verse 27 of Exodus, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one. I and my people are the guilty ones. Make an appeal to the Lord. There's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. That sounds pretty good. That sounds like repentance. Sounds like Pharaoh's got faith. But but if you're keeping track, you're going, I thought there were ten plagues. Like, what like seven, ten? Well, what what happens? Well, Moses spreads out his hands and says, I'm gonna stop this hail so that you'll know the Lord is God. And he does. And then subsequently, we read in verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his officials. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the Israelites go as the Lord had said through Moses. What happened? Well, Pharaoh wasn't really repentant. He was remorseful. He was regretful. He was sorry that these plagues, and this plague of hail in particular, had come upon Egypt, and he wanted it to stop. He wasn't reorienting his heart towards God. He didn't want to honor God. He wanted the hail to stop. Paul gives us an example in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says this, For godly grief produces sorrow. I'm sorry, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation or life without regret, whereas godly grief produces death. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation or life without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so here's the difference between the two. Remorse, regret, you feel bad. You kind of wish circumstances were different, but... Not all, like, feel bad about it, but you might do it again. Repentance, you feel bad about it, but you, you've resolved to not do it again. You, 
you hate your sin. So for example, say there is a young child who has parents that say, don't eat from the cookie jar. The cookie jar sitting on the counter, unguarded. When those little eyes catch sight of it, mom's not in the room. So those little feet, and they pull their stool over, take that, that lid off, reach their little hand in, and at this point, you know, mom or dad has been tipped off by the noise, and just kind of standing and watching. The kid has his hand in the jar, takes that cookie out. Mom or dad says, hey, put that cookie back. You know, go to timeout, whatever the punishment is. And they put that cookie back, and they feel really bad about taking the cookie from the cookie jar. They know that that's a rule they're supposed to follow, not supposed to do it. Now, if they're remorseful and just kind of regretful that they got caught, guess what's happening next time that cookie jar is unguarded? Good dunk, good dunk, good dunk, good dunk. That's remorse. Repentance would look like the next time that cookie jar is unguarded, them going into the other room, playing with toys. Maybe even they have a really strong temptation to go back to that cookie jar because they're like, man, I could have a delicious cookie right now. But instead they go to, to mom or dad and they say, hey, mom, dad, I really want a cookie right now, but I know you said not to take it from the cookie jar on my own, and so just help me uh, not do that. I want to obey you. That's repentance. And it would be extraordinary coming from a toddler. <laughs> but, but what happens when you are truly repenting, when you're following Christ, it, it's this really weird thing where your tastes begin to change. So that the things that you used to find pleasure in that were dishonoring to God, well, they, be they become sickening to you. And the things of God, which you used to think boring or weird, become sources of great delight. Maybe you've had this experience where there was a food that you really, really liked, and then you ate a ton of it and, and got sick, or uh, you fell ill. I mean, this, this happened to me in, in seminary. Uh, my roommates and I, we used to go out to eat every day of the week. Really bad habit, not great. Um, but we had footlong Friday, and we would go to the local grocery store, and you'd get a footlong sub, probably two or three of them, and last through the weekend, and, and you, you would eat that puppy up. And that was awesome, and until one Friday, uh, I got the flu in the evening after I had partaken of my sub. Never again. Don't even want to look at him. We never went back. Makes me sick now, the thought of it. Now, on the flip side, there are, you probably think of some other foods that you didn't like initially, that were weird, not that into, that you like now, right? For me, uh, this is avocado. Uh, the texture used to just creep me. It's green, yuck. Texture's bad. But now I'm like, hey, put some lime in that, some salt and pepper. I'll, I'll eat some avocado up. It's great. See, what happens when you begin following Christ is your, your tastes begin to change. You begin to delight in the things that God delights in, and you begin to hate the things that God hates. And so repentance is a hatred of sin and a spirit-empowered desire to never again engage in that sin and to obey Jesus instead. You might want that cookie, but instead you are running to the Father and saying, obedience to you is far better. That's what repentance is.
And repentance at the front end of the Christian life looks like baptism. Like baptism. Repent and be baptized. Bonus question, a little participation for you. On the front of your insert, there's New City Catechism question 44, which we did not too long ago, and we actually have this question. I'll ask it and you can answer in rhythm like good Baptists. What is baptism? Amen. Baptism symbolizes that a person has been forgiven of sin and has been raised to new life in Christ. It puts skin on our confession of faith that Jesus is Lord. It's a sign of loyalty and a pledge to our King. Baptism is the initial visible sign of the inward, invisible work of God. When you get baptized, You are saying, I'm with Jesus now. I used to be part of the world, used to do things my way, but now I'm I'm on team Jesus. It's like, I think of it like a jersey uh, in in some ways. You ever flip on the TV? You're like, which team is which for me if it's football? I'm immediately looking for that gold and blue. See where my Mountaineers are? And when I know that that's my Mountaineers, they're wearing that old gold and blue. It's beautiful. Same thing when you get baptized, you're going, I'm with Jesus. They're wearing the the Jesus uniform now. They're a Christian. See, when you become a Christian, you begin to identify with Jesus. And baptism is a very practical outworking of that. What you're saying when you're getting baptized is, I am with Jesus now. All of my other identity markers are subordinate to my being in Him. And so, maybe you've seen... uh, like a, a restaurant or a business doesn't do so well and so it goes out of business and the building sits there for a little while and then something happens. One of those signs goes up in the window. Under new management. Right, you've seen this. And then eventually it gets a, a bunch of renovations and a new name. And the same thing happens when you become a Christian and you're baptized. Is what, what, you're kind of hanging a sign around your neck that says under new management. Saying, Jesus has purchased me. I was doing things my way, but I was kind of a mess. But Jesus has purchased me. He's renovating me. And he's given me his name as my own. He's in charge now. When you're baptized, it's kind of that that sign under new management that points to these invisible transactions that God has been doing within you behind the scenes. Baptism is how we identify with Christ. It's an initial expression of faith and obedience. But it's not not easy. Look at verse 40. With many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. Uh, That language is intentional. It refers back to the many, many rebellions of the people of Israel in the wilderness. 
And what he's saying there, Peter, is with, with many words, don't be foolish like your ancestors. The promise of God is here. Enter into it. Believe. Don't make the same mistakes they did. I think we has many other words is because it wasn't easy. Can, can you know what it would have been like for a Jewish person in Israel at this time in Jerusalem to be baptized? Their leaders had just condemned this Jesus as a blasphemer, as a criminal. He was publicly humiliated and crucified. And now they're going to enter into these ritual washing pools, which are to be, uh, they're supposed to enter into to cleanse themselves for the temple. But they're not going to be cleansing themselves for the temple. They're going to be giving evidence of their conversion. This would be scandalous. It would be costly. But following Jesus always has been. It costs to follow Christ. In other parts of the world, it still costs a lot more than it does here. I mean, for us, typically, to follow Jesus, identify with Jesus, it's usually maybe just a little bit of mocking, maybe some angst within our interpersonal relationships. It's still very, very costly overseas. Will Willimon tells a story of a friend who visited Soviet Georgia, was told by a uh, Georgian Christian, quote, to be a Christian here, to be baptized, is to be motherless. When one comes up out of the water, one has lost country, parents, all. This cost shouldn't surprise us. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Obeying Jesus by being baptized is part of how we take up our cross. It's a public death. Romans 6, 3 or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Indeed, baptism costs a lot. It is a, a public death, but it's also a public resurrection. It may cost one country, parents, all, but Jesus said the person who leaves fields and families for me will receive them back a hundredfold. When one is baptized out of the world, they're also baptized into the church. For every biological mother and father that is lost, a spiritual mother and father is gained. For every country that is lost, the kingdom of God is gained. To die to yourself to follow Christ is entirely worth it. 
to have forgiveness of sin, to have the Spirit of God is worth it. And this, this promise is for everybody. I skipped this earlier, so we're doubling back. Verse 39, For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And we see also that those who God calls call out to him in verse 21 of chapter 2. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This promise is going to, um, it goes, it spans both time and space. Space, because it's not just for those people who are in Jerusalem on this day hearing Peter preach. It's for those who are far off, the Gentiles. It's for everybody. It spans across time. It's for your children and your children's children's children. It's for anybody, anywhere, who ever exists in all of time who will simply believe in Jesus. They, they can have forgiveness of sins. They can have the Holy Spirit. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have reconciliation with God if you will believe. If you will repent of your sins and follow Jesus. And part of following Jesus, part of repenting of your sins initially, one of those first steps to obedience is to unite yourself with him in baptism. Baptism exemplifies a real union that we have with Christ. It's a little bit like a, um, like a wedding ceremony in some ways. You, know, like, you don't have to have a wedding ceremony when you get married. You can just go down to the courthouse, fill out some paperwork, bada-bing, bada-boom, married. But most people don't do that. Most people have a ceremony because they want to publicly promise themselves and their love, their future love to their spouse. And they want their friends and their family to share in that joy. Likewise, in baptism, we are promising to continue following Jesus in response to his faithful love to us. And we want to share that joy with the church. Baptism is the line in the sand for the Christian. You're either baptized or you're not. You're either following Jesus or you're not. It's not optional for the Christian. It's an obligation. If Jesus is Lord and he says to be baptized, he's Lord of your life. You're going to be baptized. Now, one can be a Christian without being baptized, but one cannot be an obedient Christian without being baptized. Again, it doesn't save. Thief on the cross was saved without it, and Simon the magician goes to hell with it. But it is an essential part of Christian discipleship. I think C.S. Lewis says it well. He says, We don't come to God as bad people trying to become good people, we come as rebels to lay down our arms. Baptism is a laying down of our arms. See, picture of our submission to Jesus' lordship. It's how we bend the knee to Christ. We don't do it because we want to be a little bit more religious, put a little feather in our cap, but because we want to honor King Jesus. Verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized. 
And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. That's the church. There's horizontal dimension to baptism. You're added into the church. We'll read about that, what that looks like next week. Those who accepted his message were baptized. So that's the exhortation. Receive Jesus. Repent of your sins and be baptized. Be obedient. If you've been a Christian again for many, many a year, your call is still to be obedient. So maybe it's not baptism. Maybe there's some other area in your life where you have been disobedient to God and you need to repent and honor Him as Lord. Maybe it's with the use of your time. Maybe it's with the use of your money. Maybe it's with the media that you consume. What areas of your life do you need to go, whoa, I've gotten off track here. I need to obey Jesus in this. My hope is that we will all honor Jesus as Lord by doing what he says rather than listening to our hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving to us the gift of faith, for dying in our place for our sins while we were still your enemies, rebels, without you and without hope. Thank you that you give us life, that you resolved to love us still, and that you love us today even though we're still a mess. We need you, and we're so delighted that in you we are justified. We don't have to earn anything or or worry about you potentially disowning us because you have adopted us as your sons and daughters. You have given to us all things in Christ. Help us to rejoice in this wonderful truth. Remind us this morning that the cross means even the worst of sinners, even those who murdered Christ can be saved. Remind us that indeed we are the worst of sinners and that you can save anyone because you've saved us. You are so good, God. We give you praise this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.